Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Ariel DeVito is a writer from Cleveland and an English major in the class of 2021 at Stanford University. I'm Arielle. I'm going to be reading two pieces, the first of which is called Owen. The air conditioner in the office is broken. It sits silent in the window, and everyone drips sweat under their shirts. Jay stops writing every few minutes to wipe his hands on his slacks before he picks up the pen again. He is copying numbers and dates from one piece of paper to another, but changing all of the dates to today's date. Sometimes a note has been made in pencil above the neatly printed numbers to add or subtract or multiply the numbers by this or that much. He looks forward to these notes. Then he does the math and writes the new number down on his list. Jay is very good at math. This and having an overactive imagination are his two best skills. In high school, people were always telling him he was very good at math, and now in college, people don't tell him as much, but he still knows. It's how he was admitted to a very prestigious college, and how he gets very prestigious internships like this one. He was one of dozens of applicants who pictured themselves shaking hands with important men in suits and getting invitations to after-work parties. And now he is here, copying numbers with a pen that's slippery with sweat. He wipes his hands on his slacks. His supervisor reminds him every time she walks by that as soon as he finishes updating the records, they can get to the good stuff, the meat of things. He doesn't remember his supervisor's name. When he thinks of her, he thinks mostly of the way she is always digging under her fingernails with a mechanical pencil, and it makes a small clicking sound that he can just barely hear from his desk across the room. He asked her once why they didn't have these records digitized, and she looked at him without responding until he wasn't sure what he had said anymore. When Jay gets back to the apartment, he puts his backpack on the ground by the door and microwaves a frozen meal. Gourmet roasted turkey and vegetable entree. He eats straight out of the limp plastic container. It's Friday. At this hour, if he were on campus, he would be eating dinner with friends and planning his weekend. This isn't a city he's ever been to before, but it's also not one with much to do. There is an important museum of contemporary art, but contemporary art has always made him feel like there's an inside joke he's missing out on. There are some famous gardens, but he doesn't want to be out in the sun in this heat. Jay decides to spend the weekend moving in and getting comfortable in the apartment. He'll be here for three months, so he should be familiar with the space. All he has done so far is put his suitcase under the bed and stack his clothes on the floor of the closet, which has no light inside it, so he has to pull everything out again each morning to choose what to wear. He starts unpacking, puts his computer out on the desk in the living room and the few books he brought on the night table in the bedroom. The owner of the apartment, Owen, he had said in the few messages they exchanged on Craigslist, appears to be a hoarder. His room is full of shelves, and the shelves are full of things children's books and young adult fiction, and a few novels for adults. A huge stack of dust-coated CDs in the corner, tchotchkes everywhere. Seashells with words carved into them, jam jars full of rocks, stress balls, small enamel boxes, coins from around the world, figurines of crocodiles, interesting picture frames with nothing in them. 
Jay imagines him, short, dark-haired, bespectacled, coming home with these small souvenirs and putting them on the shelves. He pictures him lying on the ground rereading childhood books, peering in darkened antique store windows and museum gift shops for things he can add to his collection. He moves into the kitchen, glances at the empty fridge and dusty cupboards. Owen left him some instant coffee, a few boxes of stale breakfast cereal, a large number of three-quarters empty bottles of Windex and stainless steel cleaner under the sink. Jay notices, as he steps out into the living room and really looks at it for the first time, that there is no couch or beanbag or anywhere for friends to sit. One folding chair at the small table that faces the TV, and one rolling chair at the desk. He runs his hand over the cracking light blue paint on the walls and tweaks his image of Owen to be a little less attractive, a little more socially awkward. He thinks about him, watching TV over dinner, scrolling through Twitter at his desk. The top drawer of the desk is empty except for a dime and a clothing tag, but the large bottom drawer is duct tape shut. In the bedroom, Jay finds two boxes on the top shelf of the closet. Both are full of clothes, but one has a stack of photographs on top. He thinks about putting them back without looking. If they were personal, Owen would have kept them in the tape shut drawer, so he pulls them out. He has to change the picture in his mind again. Owen is skinny and red-haired, and taller than most. There are no pictures close enough to his face to see his eye color, but they're light. Owen has a lot of female friends, one of whom resembles him enough to be his sister. There are photos of them at parties, at restaurants, standing next to national monuments. Jay wonders what he spends his days doing, where he is and what he's doing this summer. He wonders why these photos aren't in the drawer, and what could be so personal that it was taped shut anyway. He wonders what Owen's voice sounds like, why he keeps so many useless items, whether he feels happy or exhausted when he looks around the cluttered apartment. His mother calls while he is looking at photos. He feels guilty, as if he is a small child again, caught doing something he shouldn't. She talks to him in Korean, and he answers in English. The apartment is stiflingly hot, and the phone sticks uncomfortably to his face. He tries opening the one window, but it's even hotter outside. The clothes Jay found in the closet are more weather-appropriate than what he brought, so he starts wearing them to work. The pants are too long, but they fit well at the waist. There is no laundry machine in the apartment, so to save money and time, he decides not to wash anything until after he wears it once. The shirts smell like what he imagines Owen must smell like, coffee and soap, and the artificial sweetness of laundry detergent. On Tuesday evening, he spreads himself out on the bed staring up at the ceiling. There are a few indistinct scuff marks, and a mottled stain that might be from the apartment above. It's too dark for him to see much, but the lamp is just slightly out of reach of the bed, and he doesn't move to turn it on. Instead, he tries to think of ways that those marks may have gotten there. The ceiling isn't very high. Owen could probably touch it from the ground, though Jay has to stand on the bed to reach. He imagines Owen stretching an arm up to scrape his fingernails on the ceiling, and shudders at the noise. On the night table, there's a bagel sandwich still wrapped in paper that Jay picked up before getting on the bus, but he doesn't feel hungry. He doesn't remember falling asleep and returns to consciousness not long after three in the morning. Getting undressed, brushing his teeth, and getting back into bed only takes a few minutes, but by then he is too restless to get back to sleep. He spends an hour watching videos he doesn't care about on his phone, then remembers he's supposed he's... He spends an hour watching videos he doesn't care about on his phone, and then remembers that he's supposed to avoid blue light, and then tosses his phone across the room and lies in the uncomfortable darkness for a long time. Eventually, he tells himself he's more likely to feel tired again if he gets up and does something, so he switches on the light and eats his dinner, which has gone room temperature and slightly soggy, and then meanders into the living room. The apartment is spooky in its emptiness. He's never lived alone before. 
On some childish impulse, he turns on all the lights in every room. It helps, even though the dim wash makes everything look dingier than before. Bored, Jay finds himself sitting on the floor by the desk, fingering the sticky corner of the peeling tape keeping the bottom drawer shut. If its contents are a secret, why wouldn't Owen have brought them with him? Or at least secured them with something more than tape? Anyone could easily take this off. If he didn't want anyone to look inside, he would have used a lock or left a note saying not to open it, but he hadn't mentioned it at all. Maybe he meant for Jay to look at whatever was inside. He imagines Owen sitting in front of the drawer, his long body scrunched into the space between it and the wall, pressing down on the piece of tape he'd used to conceal whatever it is. A message or a secret. A part of Jay, the part that recognizes that it's the middle of the night and he hasn't been sleeping well lately, knows this train of thought is ridiculous. But another part of him wants to open the drawer. Nothing bad can happen. He'll just put everything back after, and nobody will be the wiser, and his curiosity will be satisfied, and maybe then he can get to sleep. Jay wakes, disoriented by the bright light turning the insides of his eyelids orange. He doesn't know the time, but the sun streaming in through the window tells him it's late. He feels sticky, and his whole body aches. He peels his sweaty face off where it's resting on his hands and hurries to get to work. He's late, but not unforgivably so, and is grateful to fall back into the repetitive dullness of his job. He thought he was almost two-thirds of the way done with the binders full of numbers and dates, but his supervisor shows him another full shelf of them this morning. She echoes her refrain that he'll be done soon, and then he can get on to the good stuff, the meat of things. He tries to think about the good stuff he'll get to work on once he finishes, but his mind circles back to Owen. The night before, he had found all manner of things in the tape-shut desk drawer. A bong, a deck of trick cards, a high school diploma, a necklace, but he was most interested in the journals. A stack of them, all slightly different models of the same lined black notebook. Jay read half a page of the first one before he realized what it was, a journal entry from October 2014 filled with Owen's neat handwriting. He had written about his freshman year roommate who left empty cans of soda everywhere. Jay wanted to read more, but it felt intrusive, so he fell asleep on the floor trying to remember card tricks he used to know how to do. He wants to read them. It's reasonable just to look at the last few pages, to see if Owen said anything about what he was doing this summer, or about him. If not, then Jay won't read any further. He dries his sweaty hands on Owen's slacks, wipes his upper lip on his sleeve, and tries to focus on his work. Each night since he found them, Jay has been staying up late to read Owen's diaries. He's still in high school. Every day there are long and diligent entries that chronicle major, getting into a car crash, and minor, losing his favorite pen, events in his life. Jay learns so much about him he feels as if he knows him. Owen is insecure about his slight stutter. He's gay but hasn't ever had a boyfriend. He is a terrible cook but a good singer. He wanted to be a pilot for a long time but was told it was too dangerous so many times he gave it up. His voice is clear in Jay's mind, self-assured and jocular most of the time but sometimes serious and sad. Learning Owen's sexuality shouldn't change anything, but it does. When Jay imagines him now, it's much closer. The curves of his shoulders, the profile of his lips, the fan of his eyelashes against his cheek. Jay imagines him a lot. He's a companion through the long, boring days of work and lonely evenings, joking and smiling beside him. From his writing and the pictures and a fair amount of social media stalking, Jay can imagine almost everything about him. The things he thinks are funny and the expressions he makes. The only thing this daydream lacks is solidity. Every imaginary interaction evaporates when they touch. For three days, Jay has been sweating constantly. As soon as he gets out of the shower, it starts again. On Friday, the back of his shirt doesn't dry out all day. 
His wrists are sore from all the writing, and the rest of his body is sore for no reason. He feels feverish, distanced from his body in the way the very sick are, floating a little ways outside his life. His thermometer says he's fine. Maybe it's broken. He goes to a doctor on Saturday morning. She presses on different parts of his body and asks if it hurts. She tells him to stay hydrated and stay inside, and lots of people feel unwell in the heat. She says to come back if he still feels sick in a week. He imagines Owen cocking his head and mimicking the doctor's jerky way of moving behind her back. He tells Jay that at this rate, if he drinks more water, he'll drown. Jay sends the bill to his parents, whom he hasn't called for a week. His supervisor hovers behind him and clucks his tongue. She uses his full name, Jay Young, which nobody calls him except his mother. She sounds disappointed and points at his work. 613-2019-458-209-3117. Next line. 613-2019-21-960-14-2827. These are completely different numbers than the ones on the sheet Jay is supposed to be copying from. She asks him where he is coming up with these. He wipes his hands on his slacks and apologizes. She sighs, and it pushes hot, stale breath up against the back of his neck. In his mind, Owen laughs and blows a thin stream of cool air at the other side of his face. Jay looks up some card tricks online, and practices them surreptitiously at his desk with Owen's deck. It's difficult because his fingers are slippery with sweat, and he keeps fumbling the cards. The heat keeps getting worse. He has trouble focusing on anything. Owen's clothes start to develop stains under the arms and on the thighs where he wipes his hands compulsively. Once a day, he lets himself stand in front of the open refrigerator for five full minutes. He goes back to the doctor after work on Tuesday, and she tells him everything is still normal. His body temperature is half a degree above average, but that isn't anything to worry about. She tells him if he continues to experience discomfort, it's likely not physiological. She tells him he should talk to a psychiatrist. Owen makes a mocking face at him from across the room, and he has to hide a smile. He is almost at the end of the diaries. In college, Owen studied physics. He auditioned for an acapella group, but didn't get in. He lost his virginity to a closeted boy in a fraternity. He changed his major to chemistry, and then back to physics again. He got really drunk for the first time and threw up in his dorm shower. He went on dates with boys who never texted back. Jay thinks that if he had a chance with Owen, he would be better. He would call and bring flowers and take him on picnics. He imagines they are on a date right now, Owen reading over his shoulder and holding his hand. Owen's fingers are longer than his, and their knuckles would slot together perfectly. He holds for a second in his mind the feeling of the hand in his, but can't sustain it for long. On Wednesday, he calls in sick. He is still sweating, and somewhere behind his ears, his head hurts. It is too hot to read or do card tricks or even hold his phone comfortably. He takes two aspirin before turning the lights off and closing the curtains so he can take off his clothes. After an hour, the apartment is still stifling, and it feels cut off from the whole world. He has the TV on and sits on the floor on a pillow propped up against the wall. There are home renovation shows playing all day, so he watches those. He likes the way things look when they are torn down to their foundations. He only puts on a pair of boxers once, to open the door for the pizza he has delivered for dinner. When he takes them off again, he sees Owen, lounging in the folding chair, raise an eyebrow at him. Jay thinks of something bold he would say in response, and is left with the image of Owen's freckled face stained red with a blush before he fades away. In the morning, Jay's headache is worse, so he takes four aspirin and watches more TV. When he gets so hungry he can't ignore it anymore, he stuffs himself into one of Owen's t-shirts and a pair of shorts and shuffles down to the store. Walking outside makes him feel strange, 
like he's moving in a thick bubble, and everybody is muffled and distant from him. Frequently, he thinks he hears someone saying his name, but every time he turns his head, he's just left disoriented. He hurries home with a few bags of chips and salsa and some more frozen meals. When he gets back to the apartment, he sees Owen eating a bowl of Cheerios at the table with the TV on. Jay thought he had turned it off before he left, but he might have forgotten. Jay pulls up the desk chair and watches next to him, thinking up conversations that they could have late into the night. Jay doesn't know what time it is. He doesn't know if he is just waking up from sleep, or if he has been awake the whole time, just lost in the glare of the TV. He knows it's day, because the sun is blazing through the thick curtain and heating up the room like an oven. His head is pounding, and it worsens every time he moves. He realizes that he left the frozen meals out on the counter by the sink all night, but microwaves one anyway. He takes a few aspirin, he doesn't check how many, and thinks about going back to the doctor. The air is so hot and humid it feels wet. He eats slowly, not paying attention to the show that's on. His legs and gut feel heavy, but his arms are light and buzzing, and his head is a mess of pain. It's still too hot to put on clothes, but he's starting to feel self-conscious about his nudity, like his body is somebody else's. Jay dries his sweaty hands on a dish towel, then soaks the towel in cool water and slings it over the back of his neck. The noise from the TV is making his head hurt, but he can't find the remote, so he just unplugs it. He sees Owen in the bedroom, toweling off his hair like he has just taken a shower. Jay tiptoes in and closes the door behind him. He is dizzy, and a steadying hand on the wall doesn't help because the wall seems to be moving too. He collapses on the bed, and then wishes he hadn't. The blanket is too warm, and his head is ringing from the movement. Owen's face hovers above his own with a look of concern. The towel he had been wearing around his waist is gone. They're both naked. Jay's brain feels like it's about to burst out of his skull. He wants to be alone. He lifts up a hand to brush away the image, but it doesn't disappear. Instead, it comes closer, until there is a mouth on his, the brush of a tongue against his lips, curls of red hair falling in his face, gentle hands on his ribcage. His skin burns, and his head is fuzzy with pain. All he can feel is Owen's body pressing down on his, slippery with sweat, the heat and the weight of him. This is called Wing Longing. I once lived with an entomologist who was interested in moths. She was interested in anything that was small and had large wings, but mostly in moths. Large ones with soft antennae and tiny ones that could perch on your thumbnail, and white furry ones that hatched in the winter, and translucent green ones that used to be fat caterpillars that she would bring home and keep in jars and feed with oak leaves from the backyard. She lived in my house, and we slept together often, and I cooked her expansive dinners when she came home from the lab, but when she said she loved me, she was lying. This was okay. I loved her, and that was all I needed at the time. She loved the creatures that she raised at the lab, and let weave in and out of her fingers, creatures with small tapered bodies and wings that tried to fool you into thinking they were eyes. She loved them as they fluttered and as they crawled, as tessellating eggs and squirming pupae and bulbous chrysalises. I was wingless, and I was large and sturdy and had no interest in eating nectar or mulberry leaves, and so she could not love me. I understood this because I understood her, and because I myself had tried too many times to love something I could not. So we stayed together, and I loved her because I needed something to love, and she needed somewhere to live, and someone to cook for her, and rub her back, and listen to the things she wanted to say. The days passed with regularity, and time went by in a slippery way, like egg white through your fingers. One night, we were lying in bed, naked and kissing, but without urgency. We had spent all of our urgency in the first few months of being together, and now when we touched, it was slow, almost methodical. She pulled back and turned to stare at the ceiling, at the low-hanging light above our bed. 
There's something I have to tell you, she said. I shivered from the air coming in through the open window, or from something else I couldn't tell. I've been looking at apartments. Elsewhere, I mean. This was not a surprise to me. Of late, she had stopped coming home before dinner had gone cold. Stopped even repeating back the words I said to her. But my body took it as a surprise anyway, and froze up so that I could not speak to tell her that I had guessed as much, that I had loved enough and was willing to move on if that's what she wanted. I'm just not sure I'm the same person I was when I met you, when I thought I wanted a relationship, she said, her voice forced soothing, almost patronizing. It's not personal, you know. I just need more space for myself. And things at work are so stressful, I think I'm decaying. I'm breaking out in rashes, look. She took hold of my hand and pressed it to a small, ragged tear in her skin near her navel that I hadn't noticed when she first took off her clothes. Instead of blood or a scab, it opened up to a dry, flat surface. It felt hard and smooth, and I ran my fingertip over it and felt my nails catch on the edge of her skin, which curled up slightly. What is it? I asked, although suspicion churned low in my stomach. Under my fingertips, I had felt a kind of movement, a bump or a flutter. I don't know, but it itches more than a million mosquito bites. Her hands pushed mine out of the way, and she dug her fingernails into the skin around the spot. Her skin started to peel back, but there was no blood, and the underside wasn't veined or wet, but dark brown and shiny like the spot was. Underneath, where flesh or ribs should have been, I caught a glimpse of many things in furious motion. Hands jumped back and recoiled, and I looked up at her face to see sick curiosity and horror. She didn't want to see what was inside her, but I was suddenly desperate to know if I was right. What had I really been loving for all this time? I reached out quick fast and seized onto the edge of her skin, which felt doughy and crackling, yanked it back across her stomach and her chest and up to her shoulder with a sickening ripping noise, and the motion underneath exploded out of her into a flurry of wings and fat, furry bodies. They were a blurred mass of colors and shapes and sizes that seethed towards me, and I recoiled instinctively from the feeling of their spindly insect legs on my skin. Then the motion took itself away from me, and I blinked dazedly at the hundreds of moths streaming out the window. I was left on the bed with only myself and the deflated chrysalis of a woman, and one moth perched on my wrist with half-closed wings. It was enormous, larger than my hand, with ruddy wings that curved like teardrops and white triangles ringed with black. I lifted my arm and looked at it closely, examined every hair on its feather-like feelers and the joints of its unmoving legs. Its eyes were round and bulging, and for a second, I thought I saw a glint in them that made me feel like it was about to start telling me about caterpillar eating patterns. And then it, too, opened its wings and flew off into the night. You can find more of her work at arieldevito.com. Hi, Ariel. Thank you so much for being on Off the Page. So... I was actually talking to a student today and he was telling me about a story he was working on and he said that the thing he was frustrated with about it was that there was no mystery to it. It was like totally intelligible to him. And something that's so impressive about these two pieces is how they do contain mystery. And I think it's one of the hardest things for a writer to strike is that balance between allowing for mystery while also not being vague or imprecise or obscure. I'm curious about maybe your relationship to mystery in your own writing. Is that something that you strive toward or is that balance that I'm talking about just just an intuitive Mm -hmm. thing? I think that 
the things that I want to write about are things that are exciting, and things that are exciting to me are usually at least somewhat mysterious. Most of the time when I'm feeling inspired to write, it's because I'm seized by an image or a feeling or even a smell or a sound that's unconventional or surprising or mysterious, and that usually forms the core of the story, and that's true for both of these. So while I try to make it clear that there's a specific story of a desire that's understandable and not mysterious to me at all, I think I should understand my characters. The actual happenings in the story, especially because they're in this sort of surreal or magical realist genre, are, yeah, often a little bit of a mystery. And something that happens during workshopping and during edits for me a lot is I have someone read my writing and I say, does this make any sense to you? Because I think it's very easy to get too mysterious, too crazy and out there, and then the reader has no sense of how things fit together. But I, I do try to keep it from being too straightforward because then I think it loses that excitement that sparked it in the beginning. Well, and also like being inspired by this sense of a chargedness to certain things, yeah. certain objects, is I think how good writing gets done. But again, that's such a different part of our brains. And I think so often we're idea-driven and concept-driven and being able to say, oh, but actually it's just that smell that I want to write about <laughs> and I don't know why... That's how you do it. But you mentioned the editing process, and we might be getting slightly out of order here, but that's okay. We can have a nonlinear interview. Um, <laughs> when you are writing, a first draft or second draft can happen pretty intuitively, but then you workshop, you share it with people, you start to think in a maybe colder, more analytic way. It does it become difficult then to preserve what's sort of ineffable in the work when you start to understand it better yourself? Sometimes, yeah, I think definitely. I actually... Um, one, of, one of my weaknesses, I think, as a writer is that I, I don't fear revision, but it's not as fun. I love being caught up in the writing of a first draft and feeling like I'm brilliant and it's perfect. And then coming back to read it and realizing that it still needs work um, is a little disheartening. It's something I'm still working on. But um, I do find, especially in the more methodical types of revision, going through and actually asking what is each of these lines doing? What is this image you know, what is the purpose of it in this piece, it, it can get tedious and it can get hard. And that's, for me, usually a sign that it's time to put it away for a couple of weeks or even a month or two, um, and then come back to it when I'm fresh and not maybe as attached to what I was working on. Yeah. So now I want to talk about the specific pieces. And maybe we could start with Owen. Sure. You know, you described the pieces as magical realists, and I can certainly see that with Wing Longing. But the funny thing is with Owen, like... There's nothing in that story that's technically beyond the realm of possibility. And I thought it was such a subtle tale of obsession. I mean, when he starts wearing the clothes, I thought, oh, man, <laughs> I didn't know the story was going to go in this direction. And then, and then to go back to the beginning and see one of the first things we learn about him is that he has an overactive imagination. Yeah. And that he's in an office without an air conditioner and he doesn't know his supervisor's name. So I see right away we've actually been pushed into a slightly skewed reality, but it's so it's so subtly done that I perceive it as and also this job he has is very mysterious <laughs> also, but it's yeah. it's presented so so straightforwardly that I accept it as reality. So I'm just curious where this piece started for you. Well, I actually had an internship this summer in an office with broken air conditioning. Um, and I loved my internship, so you know, no <laughs> it's very vaguely inspired, but I had one day where I was performing very tedious tasks of just updating the records that they had had 
you know, handwritten since like the 90s and refused to digitize. So there was just one day of basically doing what he was doing. And then simultaneously, I was staying in the basement of my mom's friend's apartment, um, which was usually her daughter's room. And I was just fascinated by living in someone else's space when they're not there, but it's still very much being their space. And yeah, I guess what I was really interested in is what you can discover about a person from their things, from where they live, from their spaces. Um, and then simultaneously, it was very, very hot that summer. And this feeling of, of heat that was like pervading my whole life um, was something I wanted to work in and like how that sort of drives you a little bit crazy. So yeah, that's where it came from. And I think you can feel all those things. You can feel the oppressive heat. You can feel this really interesting. I mean, we're used to saying like, oh, you know, fiction's about relationships between characters. And what's interesting here is that it's an invisible or off yeah. off stage character, but it's a very strong charged relationship nonetheless. And the objects that he studies and fantasizes about are also really vivid. I'm I'm curious, you know, and you may not want to answer this super extensively, but I'm curious as you have worked on the story and and understood it more if you developed any sense of what Jay's issue fundamentally is. Because I think at times I read it as like a discomfort with his sexuality. Mm -hmm. At times I read it as like, there's one line that's it's like, this is adulthood, you know? Like he's transitioned into, it's not college, it's boring, yeah. lonely, urban adulthood. And in fact, that's the crisis that he's dealing with. There's an extensive backstory for Jay that does not make it into the piece at all because I don't think it's necessarily entirely relevant. But in my head, it was this is issue of repression on many, many levels. Um, so there's firstly his sexuality, which uh, in my mind, he is not out to anyone. He's not, you know, living that experience. It's just something he knows about himself. He's at a very prestigious university and a very prestigious internship. He's very good at math. He's been funneled into this his whole life. And this imagination that he has has had no chance ever to be used and to be a part of his life. So I, I think it's kind of a combination of both things that you said. It's one, this, you know, obsession over this particular man is because he has this chance to explore his sexuality as if it w were the person, but without the actual, you know, fear that goes along with being with a real person. Simultaneously, this yeah, this oppressive feeling of this is what I must do because this is what I have been doing with no space for exploration or joy or excitement or, or newness. That's so interesting. Yeah, that idea of the imagination that hasn't had any outlet and now it just mm -hmm. all comes like spewing out. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting interpretation. But I also think that in revision, you made the right choice to leave that very understated. Again, you don't want to kill the energy of yeah. the piece by overinterpreting it. Now, wing longing, where did that come from? A, a trip to the Maw Museum? <laughs> <laughs> Close, actually. I was just walking home from a park and I saw three or four cabbage butterflies fly up um, out of the ground and I just sort of fell in love with the way that they moved. And I just really like moths also as part of it. So um, the two of those things combined and then Freshman year, I was thinking a lot about what it means to be like married to your work, which I think here at Stanford is something that is so prevalent is just being like fully invested in whatever it is you're working on and maybe not 
putting as much work into your interpersonal relationships. So, uh, yeah, the two of those things just kind of came together in my mind um, to create this very, very short little experiment. Well, and and I think with pieces that are, you know, like this piece, very overtly magical realist, the challenge or one of the challenges is you've got this premise that has metaphorical resonance, but mm-hmm. you don't want it to be too neatly or perfectly or reductively A equals B. And so these moths exploding out of the lover, they do sort of stand in for like her unavailability, her unknowability, her investment in her work. But again, like not too much, right? And they are also, because the writing is so visceral, they are also like really in her body, really (laughs) exploding out of there. And I think something fun about moths and butterflies in particular as insects is they are probably the most like metaphorized insects in our society because they've got this chrysalis phase and we just love that as humans, I guess. So on the one hand, it's, you know, learning what you really are. On the other hand, it's this element of sort of beauty and horror simultaneously of going from, you know, one thing to something fully different, but also becoming your fullest self. And also, just moths themselves are kind of on this border of beauty and horror. Like a butterfly, pure beauty, but the moth, there's something also squicky about it. (laughs) And I had no idea that there was such a variety, actually, until until you described some of them in this this opening paragraph. I'm curious, like, do you see the narrator of this piece as being self-deceptive about her relationship? Because she says, she didn't love me. And I was fine with that. I wonder if I believe that or not. Yes, I definitely think that she's lying to herself about her okayness with being unloved. In my mind, it's a sort of coping mechanism for not being sure that she'll find a truly reciprocal love and saying, well, this is okay. At least I have this and I'm okay with it. And the moment where her body betrays her, where she says, oh, it's okay if you want to move on in her head, but she can't physically say it. I think is a little bit telling of that. That fact that she's just really not prepared for the relationship to end, even though she wants to be. Yeah, and that is a great moment when the body, like, betrays the mind. That's very real behavior. And yeah, and just psychologically, again, it's 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 interesting to me how, like, the, the psychology of that dynamic feels so so real-worldly, and yet then it's, it's abutting this, you know, extravagant mm-hmm. um, flight of fancy. I guess maybe the last thing I'd like to ask you, Ariel, is just sort of more broadly about, like, your your writing. Like, um, I've read a few other of your pieces, and it seems like you are very interested in writing magical realism. Is this Do these pieces maybe belong to, like, a larger project you're working on? Or I'm just curious about where you are in your writing right now. I'm working on a couple of projects right now, and the one that I hope that these will belong to is sort of a, a collection or anthology of surreal stories that are interested in taking one or two like human emotions or desires and pulling them as far as possible into surreality or unreality while still holding on to that core feeling so that it's still you know relatable and real on some level. Are there other particular writers in in that vein that inspire you? Yes I'm very very inspired by Carmen Maria Mikado. She is one of my favorite writers ever. Amy Bender does a lot of similar stories. Mm-hmm. The, the, third, the third person who really inspires me is um, Ha Seong Nan, whose short story collection Flowers of Mold was recently translated into English. It's absolutely beautiful, and I would recommend it to everyone. And it's, it's more like Owen in that nothing that is 
100% impossible happens, but the stories are very implausible and told in this amazingly emotional register. Have you read um, Ludmila Petrushevskaya? No, I haven't. You should check her out. She kind of straddles the border. She writes some things that are very mm-hmm. overtly supernatural and, and non-realist, and then she has other stories where it's just this weird, slow undertow of not quite rightness, yeah. but not overtly supernatural or, or I, non-realist. I think it's really fun, and I think it's a, a genre that's very popular right now with women and queer writers specifically in short stories. And it's really fun to be able to work in this genre and know that it's something that other people love as well, and that this feeling that the way in which you can express reality is through unreality is not just me. And do you think, like, there are things, emotions, states that you can only express through unreality? I think so. Um, I think that the the English language isn't really sufficient, and that's something writers have been struggling with since the beginning of time. I think that this is one approach to that problem, creating these unreal situations to allow us to sort of come at it sideways since language doesn't allow us to always encompass things straightforwardly. Yeah, I definitely agree. Thank you so much, Ariel, for Thank reading you. your work and talking with me. It's glad to be here. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.